my earliest memory of injustice, therefore, was coming home from school and finding that we had been served with an eviction notice and my father desperately, A, looking for an alternative place to live and B, trying to find a truck so that he could get our furniture out of the house before the bulldozers would come and destroy and flatten everything. And that was when I saw grown people cry because of how apartheid personally affected them. And so when I met Nelson Mandela in 1987 in Polsmoor Prison, the warden had come to me, said to me that um, I, I must go with him to the hospital. I protested that I'm not sick. He says, no, just get dressed and come with me. And we came to the hospital and said, go inside there and wait. And if anyone speaks to you, don't speak loudly. And while I was inside there, a door opened, in walked a tall, gray-haired man. And we, I almost knew that that was Nelson Mandela. But can you imagine? He knew about me. He had heard about me. He knew I was in the same prison with him. He knew that I was leading a Muslim organization. The security of people and the security of Muslims have to be paramount. After 300 years of Islamophobia, when Muslims were enslaved, when Islam was banned, and Muslims were discriminated against by apartheid, the first priority wasn't to fight the gays. The first priority was to establish Islam and Muslims as a within a Darul Aman, a Darul Salam, and a Darul Shahada, a place of security, of peace, and of the free profession of their faith. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Muslim-centric podcast where we hope to educate, inspire and entertain on issues relevant to Muslim life and I'm your host Aman. This episode is a Desert Island Gems interview where I asked my guests to imagine they're cast away to a desert island with eight gems of wisdom which have been important throughout their life journey. My guest is the South African Muslim politician Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul. Very few Muslim politicians across the world have been successful in balancing politics and faith. Brother Ibrahim became involved in student politics in the 1980s, fighting against apartheid. He worked as a high school teacher in his 20s. Due to his political activism, he was imprisoned by the apartheid regime. He went on to become a close friend and colleague of Nelson Mandela. He held various political office positions in South Africa and was also the South African ambassador to USA from 2010 until 2015. For those unfamiliar with the history of apartheid in South Africa, Brother Ibrahim describes what it was like. Nelson Mandela was released from prison in 1990 after 27 years and became the South African president in 1994. In this episode, Ambassador Ibrahim talks about his formative early life experiences growing up in an apartheid system, his entry into politics, surviving in prison, Islamophobia, Muslim leadership in the West, and his own personal sacrifices. 
please do support the podcast by subscribing to our YouTube channel, leaving a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast, and spreading the word to friends and family. Inshallah, it will help others benefit from the podcast. So I hope you enjoy the interview. So assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslim-centric podcast. And we have another Desert Island Gems for you today. And I'm really privileged to have our guest, Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul. Assalamu alaikum, Brother Ibrahim. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah, Aman. Thanks very much for the honor to be on your Muslim-centric podcast. Well, thank you so much. And you're joining us obviously from South Africa and uh, I'm based here in Scotland. And it's just on the cusp of Ramadan. So for most of the uh, places in Glasgow, and uh, I think we'll be doing Ramadan tomorrow. How about in South Africa? No, South Africa, we have not seen the moon tonight. So inshallah, we should be starting on Friday, the 24th of March. Fantastic. So Ramadan Mubarak when it comes anyway. Yeah. But Inshallah, um, just a little bit of an introduction about yourself. So uh, you're a very prominent and uh, what I would call a global Muslim politician from South Africa, um, who was a friend of Nelson Mandela, an ambassador to the United States, and also a thought leader who gave confidence, I think, to the Muslim Ummah after 9-11. And we met briefly in Glasgow when you were visiting just uh, a few months ago, um, but part of this conversation, I guess I've always wanted to have a conversation with you since about 2016 that uh, you were in the UK and you were attending some events. And um, I think certainly your activism and your reflections and thoughts uh, have stuck with myself and some of the brothers and, and sisters locally, I know, over the years. So it really is a privilege to speak to you. So we'll speak a little bit, maybe perhaps about your life, but also we have you've kindly put some gems together. So the premise is that you're cast away on a desert island and you have these gems to take with you that will that have maybe been important parts of your life or remind you or make you ponder or think about important aspects of your life, inshallah, and we'll, uh, we'll go through them as well. But by means of introduction, um, I think very much as adults, we are very much formed by our early formative experiences particularly in terms of childhood and, and family upbringing. So are you able to share a little bit about what your early childhood was like? What was your family environment like? What were things and your memories growing up in South Africa? I think it was in Cape Town, wasn't it? Yeah. I've grown up in in Cape Town, South Africa, and lived here for the overwhelming part of my life, except for maybe seven years in the United States, firstly as ambassador and then later as a scholar at Georgetown University. But my early childhood was a life that was within the context of apartheid, the separation and discrimination against people of darker colors by a white minority. But I must say that growing up in a very protective and protected environment of largely Muslims amongst families close to your grandparents, seeing them on a regular basis and playing with your cousins and going to school with them was a fairly uncomplicated um, life. And it was almost as if for that generation living so closely with each other 
Apart that may have been a blessing because it threw you with those that you looked like, ate like, talked like, looked like, dressed like, prayed like, and all of those kind of things. So it may even have been that there were those who saw apartheid as a way of consolidating their identity with those who shared that identity. I think that was all shattered as I was turning about 10, when suddenly the area in Cape Town called District 6, which was in the heart of the central business district, was declared white, and that all people who were not white had to leave. And so that shattered the myth of apartheid confirming your religious, cultural identity. And basically, my earliest memory of injustice, therefore, was coming home from school and finding that we had been served with an eviction notice and my father desperately, A, looking for an alternative place to live and B, trying to find a truck so that he could get our furniture out of the house before the bulldozers would come and destroy and flatten everything. And that was when I saw grown people cry because of how apartheid personally affected them. It affected them legally, it affected them politically, but it was never so in your face as on that day in 1972. And so that's when we moved to the Cape Flats. Suddenly, we found ourselves with many other displaced people across the color line, across the class lines, across the religious lines, across the cultural lines. And so we needed to learn how to embrace difference, where before we were only in a heterogeneous situation. And that's where my memory of apartheid a year later was followed by a global memory in which the Yom Kippur War between Israel and the Arabs um, erupted in the Middle East. And suddenly we were confronted again with this in-your-face sense of global injustice. And that created out of our generation of displaced and discarded people a political memory that stuck with us um, at our new school in a working-class area of Manenberg. And that's really um, where I was launched, in a sense. My first year at high school was in 1976, and that was my first taste of tear gas, of rubber bullets, and of whoopings as we marched in solidarity with the students of Soweto. And from that moment, I was on the Student Representative Council of my high school, which was a very political high school of the Trotskyist tradition. And for the next five years, I served on that SRC, the Student Representative Council, until in my matric year, I served as the secretary of the SRC and a delegate of our school in the Committee of 81, which coordinated a 12-week school boycott across the country and certainly across Cape Town. And so I found myself in a leadership role at that very, very early age, having to command over a thousand students at my school and being part 
of millions of students across the country who were revolting against apartheid because A, they were taught in a language that was alien to them. B, they were taught in facilities which were manifestly inferior. C, they had to deal with textbooks which were absent and racialized. And D, they were dealing with outcomes of education which were meant to keep us as hewers of wood and drawers of water rather than reaching our God-given potential. And that really launched me into my university years. And from there, um, my innocence had been shattered. All I wanted ever to do um, when I was a young person growing up was to become a provincial rugby player. Um, I was a lock and I was a loose forward and that's all I wanted to do. And suddenly my insertion into politics meant that that innocent chapter of my life had ended and I was now cast into a political leadership role. And so I think I was robbed of probably about 10 years of my youth um, by apartheid. Yeah. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. But just going back, I guess that really formative experience when you're nine or ten of of being evicted. Um, I mean, how much of did that did did you understand at the time, and what was your kind of, you know, as a young person just trying to make sense of obviously the distress you were seeing up in the family around you, and you know the uncertainty. Do you remember what what was going on in your mind, or what how you were kind of processing it as a nine or ten year old boy? I think it was an ambiguous feeling because the house we moved into had three bedrooms instead of the two, had hot water instead of the water that we had to boil all the time, had an inside toilet rather than the kind of um, night soil toilet that we had grown up with um, in Cape Town. And so for us, the space, the facilities, the amenities were all wonderful improvements to our lives. And we could never really grasp the deep sadness that had descended on our parents. And only later could we understand that what we gained in hot water, flush toilets, and extra room, they had felt as a loss of closeness to family, of having to rebuild the mosque that they had gone to in having to find a madrasa for their children when all of that was within walking distance, um, of having to put up extra security because we were no longer in familiar territory and we were found with people who were infinitely poorer than us and who were desperate for any source of income whether legal or illegal. And so suddenly the freedom we had to play until Maghrib um, at night was suddenly gone because there were strict instructions that we needed to be inside the house at a particular time because that's when the area became unsafe. The familiarity of the Adhan calling us to prayer from early morning to late night suddenly had disappeared. And so I think we learned the value of family, the value of community, the value of religious institutions, the value of familiar territory. Um, 
That's what our parents missed, whereas we rejoiced yeah. in the material things of life. And it sounds, was it quite a religious household or you, that you grew up in? Excuse me? Was it a religious household that you grew up in? Was religion important for the family? Religion was very defining for who you were under apartheid. Because when you were denigrated for your color, when you were denigrated for your culture, the thing that gave you a sense of purpose and a sense of righteousness was your religious identity. And so I grew up in a family that was religious, but differently religious in a very diverse sense. My mother came from a typical Malay background. My grandfather, her grand, my great-grandfather, her grandfather was the founder of the oldest Molu Jama in Cape Town and in South Africa, dedicated to the celebration of the prophethood and the birth of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And so we grew up with that traditions of Molud, of spiritualism, almost a Sufi tradition. My father, on the other hand, grew up in a very intellectual household. They grew up questioning the ulama. They grew up being suspicious that the ulama had to prove that they were right before they were believed to be right. And so I grew up with this kind of immersion in very traditional wonderful Pirat, um, Mawlud-based musical Islam on the one hand, and on the other hand, a critical um, approach to Islam that made you question everything. And both of those came in very handy for me growing up and yeah. in later life in that my mother's side of the family had rooted me in my identity, whereas my father's side of the family had been able to say to me, um, think through Islam. Don't simply accept what you hear and subject it to critical appraisal and read the Quran for yourself and don't let anyone interpret it for you. So you had the beautiful balance from both sides, I guess, those formative years. And do you think, were there signs of kind of leadership when you were very young? You know, obviously later on in life, you know, you became a leader in many different ways. But um, do you think that was nurtured with the signs of that? Were you quite a confident young boy? And were you encouraged to get involved in things? Or um, what do you think in terms of those early signs? Was there anything... I think my early signs were that I always took the lead in the rugby match um, in my junior teams. Even at high school, I captained my school's first rugby team when I was only in standard eight or grade 10, um, as it is called today. And so I think that that is where my interest in rugby strategy was a very important one. I think we also, in 1973, with the Yom Kippur War, we had these debates in which we digested the balance of forces between the Arabs and the Israelis and then had to, 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 to discount for the Arabs the overwhelming support that the USA would be giving um, Israel. Um, and so I think, and in those debates, um, I would play a leading role because my father ensured that every day we had two newspapers to read, the morning Cape Times and the afternoon Cape Argus. And so I, 
I could understand that, but almost your BS detector had to be very strong because you were reading apartheid newspapers. And so you were not just reading on the line and getting the news, you were also having to read between the lines to interpret what angle was this coming from. And so those were the kind of early signs of leadership that, um, and it was largely sporting based, it was largely debating based, but when I reached high school, it took the form of leading my class for the first few years and then leading the school and then later leading a community of 81 schools in Cape Town. Alhamdulillah. So we'll, we'll hear more about that, but let's go to your first gem that you're going to take with you on your desert island. So if you could tell us what that is and maybe why you chose that. So the first gem that I have looked at would be the verse from the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَنُنَزِلُ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ مَا هُوَ شِفَعُ وَرَحْمَةُ لِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in the revelation of the Qur'an, there is for the believers a healing and a mercy. Now that reached for me a crescendo when I found myself um, in prison. I was in solitary confinement. I had been detained, not arrested, not charged, but under the state of emergency, the apartheid police had the right to just pick you up. They did not have to explain why. They could lock you up and you could disappear, as I did for the first time, for about four months, and the second time for about 13 months. And This was in your 20s, is that right? So this was in my early 20s. Early 20s, yeah. To to the mid-20s. The kind of period 1985 to about 1988. Um, those were the periods in which I found myself um, in prison in the leadership at this point of the United Democratic Front, which was a front of a whole range of different anti-apartheid organizations. I was its secretary in the Western Cape, as well as the national secretary of the Call of Islam, which was the Muslim response to apartheid, as well as the national coordinator of the interfaith movement started by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And so in this, while being in solitary confinement with only the Quran as your your companion, this verse then hits me between the eyes. And it basically says, that that which uh, we are searching for as a nation in South Africa, as a Muslim ummah in South Africa, and as organizations within South Africa, it's to be found in the revelation of the Quran. That the Quran has for us not only a mercy, but also a healing. And suddenly, the whole reading of the Quran, before I was very satisfied, especially from my mother's side, to be completing as many um, not Hafid al-Quran, but certainly to be able to read the Quran from cover to cover. That was a blessing and a worship by itself. My father said had taught me to read the English of the Quran um, and to at least understand what the Arabic meant. But suddenly there was now a new dimension that says, 
find the healing, find the mercy, and read the Quran so that the healing and the mercy becomes apparent um, to you. And that transformed from an act of worship to an act of research, a search for meaning uh, in the Quran, but more importantly, to find the contextual application of the Quran. And suddenly, verses that I would have passed by, such as, stand out firmly as witnesses to Allah for justice, suddenly um, took the idea that we are from one source and we have been diversified was the antidote to the idea of apartheid that we are different and therefore we are inferior and therefore we should be discriminating amongst each other. And suddenly the Quran spoke a language which was much more different. And so, um, and so for me, that was always um, a way in which I learned a few lessons, the immediate lesson that I learned, and this is probably, if you don't mind, um, moving on to my second gem. Because yep. in that period, I needed the Quran to speak to me about healing and mercy because I was facing my interrogators almost on a daily basis in that first month. I had been entrusted with some of the big secrets of the anti-apartheid movement. What are the constituent parts of the final assault on apartheid? How we were going to mobilize people? How we were going to reintroduce the banned African National Congress into South African society? How we were going to manage um, the, the very tricky situation of what I call militant nonviolence onto the South African scene, inspire our people and push back the apartheid forces with it. And so to face and to stare down my interrogators, I needed an antidote. And so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and you must imagine the Prophet sallallahu wasallam is weighed down by this revelation in the cave of Hira, that has been given. He's unsure about whether he's worthy and whether this was an apparition, whether this was real, and rushes in and covers himself with a cloak. And the revelation comes, Ya al Muzammil. Oh, you are covered. And further on, and this is what was my instruments out of, out of that, is when Allah says to the beloved Prophet, and endure, be resilient in the face of what they say to you. And always show them the face of a beautiful dignity. And what it said to me is, don't get angry. Because that's your vulnerability. Don't be sad that you are in prison. Because you are showing your fragility. Don't be affected by the worst things that they say. They will tell you, oh, your comrade has already told us all the things, so you better just verify it. Or they will say, you are worth nothing. They will tell you that your mother is um, 
humiliated by the fact that you are in prison. And you then have to come with the idea, wasbir ala ma yaqulun, endure what they say. Don't be swayed. Wahjurhum hajaran jamila. And always show them the face of a beautiful dignity. And that became my mantra in every encounter that I have had, whether it is the high enemies of apartheid, whether it is doing my job in the USA, knowing that, for example, um, they have just allowed a coup that would turn back the Arab Spring, or even whether it is in your family that you have, for example, had a tiff with someone, that your dignity must never, ever be compromised. And so I think that's how the Quran started healing me of anger, of it, it allowed me to discipline myself because it made dignity more important than the most righteous anger that you could be having. Yeah. And, and, and was that, I mean, it sounds like that was a very much an active choice because you could, you, you know, I can only imagine at that point you could have gone down the road of, anger, vengeance, hatred, uh, and you chose actually, you know, the path of sabr and dignity and, you know, I mean, how did you kind of, um, was that quite a conscious decision? Was it like you said, look, you know, perhaps, you know, the early, early stages you, when you were in prison, did you say, look, I have a choice to deal with this or how did it, or was it just more natural and organic based on your own kind of personality style? Because, um, you know, I've speak, I've spoken to people that have been in prison and obviously it's a life-changing experience and I can only imagine being in solitary confinement as well, the effect that has on you mentally and physically, etc. So, because um, you might be familiar with Viktor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning as well, where, you know, he was a psychiatrist that was in the concentration camps and he talks about people made a choice of how you're going to deal in this situation where a lot of your choices are taken away from you and your ability to make that choice in that situation really affects how you cope and how, you know, who survived and who did, you know, who managed to get through things and who couldn't. So are you able to just share your thoughts or reflections on, I guess this is a very critical time for you and how you, you know, navigated that? I think it was not a choice that came to me in my first week in prison and in solitary confinement. It was something that I had to develop. And fortunately, I loved Surah Muzammil, but not necessarily for this deep insight. I loved it because it's a beautiful surah. It speaks about standing at night. And so I dedicated myself to tahajjud and the night prayers and all of those and reciting the Quran at night, etc., etc. And, um, and then when I went beyond the familiar ayat and armed with the idea that the Quran has a healing and a mercy for you and looking for it, you suddenly find a most unlikely verse that tells you your plan of action and that, in a sense, begins to calm down the temper of your own soul, the discord in it, 
the wanting to lash out, the rage in you has to be has to be quietened down. And then suddenly you begin to, 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 to get a sense that the key to it is that you must conquer your own soul. And so that resonated with things that we had learned in the Islamic movement. Allah does not change the condition of people until they change that which is within themselves. That you cannot change the questions that your interrogators will ask you. You cannot change the methodology that your interrogators would be using against you. You cannot determine the length of time you will be standing while they question you and how long the lights will, the bright lights will be on when they are busy with you. But you can determine your response to it. And so when everything else is taken from you, you only have your own choice of response. And then the Quran comes along and says, be resilient with what they say. Uh, and if you don't mind me asking about that time in prison, because I think it does fascinate me. And I mean, did you have, I've spoken to again some people that they spoke about they've had special visions or messages or experiences from Allah SWT in those periods that, I mean, even when you read about the, you know, the experience of Zainab al-Ghazali, you know, um, may Allah have mercy on her, you know, and, and back in Egypt, and you, you hear about this, obviously it's this, you know, when you at your lowest, perhaps, in reaching out to Allah SWT, I mean, did you, and you don't need to share them, but I'm just curious to say, was was there an altered kind of spiritual state, or, you know, how do you cope? I mean, 13 months in prison is... I mean, the uncertainty. Um... I think for me, it was not the issue of visions and dreams that was, and maybe I had become a little bit too turned into my own mind and my own soul that the instruction for me, I thought, was in how certain ayat had hit me. And so when it said to me, if you want to know what Allah wants of you, read this Quran. And that's how I turned the Quran into a program that saved my sanity. Hmm. So after Fajr, I would just read the Arabic as much as what I could and complete as many cycles of reading the Quran. Then after breakfast, I would, in a sense, teach myself hifs of my favorite chapters of the Quran. Then after lunch, I would read as much of the English of the Quran, making notes in the, in the margins of the Quran. And this was the Quran that I had in prison with me. And you can see it is quite um, written into and underlined and everything like that. What translator is it? Yusuf Ali. Yusuf and Ali. the condition was that there should be no commentary. 
the prison authority said it should just be the Quran, no commentary. That helped me. And then I started after supper time, I started doing an index of the Quran so that I could say these are all the verses on love, these are all the verses on worship, these are etc. etc. And so so in a sense, um what I'm saying is that my conversation with Allah hmm. was in interacting with the words of Allah, the kalam, and actively engaging it. Um, and hence, for example, um, the kind of third gem from the Quran that confirmed me rather than broke me because the security police would have wanted you to be so petrified of ever being in prison again that you would become a good citizen. Um, disciplined and, 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 and obedient to the apartheid laws. And in Surah Balad, I encounter the choice that Allah gives when um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I've shown you two paths. But you have not embarked on the steep and difficult path. How can I explain to you what is this aqaba, the steep and difficult path? And then Allah proceeds to say, It is freeing from slavery. It is feeding in hunger. It is embracing the stranger. It is looking after. Um, and, 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 and the critical engagement of the Quran is not to believe that category one, freeing slavery, has disappeared. No, people are enslaved to many other things. They are held in thrall by other things, whether it is their personal enthrallment with wealth or whether it is their addiction to um, substances or whether it is um, their obedient to unjust systems and their silence in the face of it. And, and, and those are all the kind of things. And so this idea um, about choosing the steep path, I then was able to say, that to pray is a precondition for doing good. To fast is a training ground for doing good. To go on hajj is a confirmation so that you can continue to be an ambassador of Allah. And therefore, the easy path are the things that we make difficult, like praying, fasting, um, etc. Whereas the steep things are the ways in which you make society and you make people better and you um, improve the ummah, inshallah. And so, 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 so it confirms um, the path that you are on. And suddenly you have a criterion to understand what piety is. Because I think we have misguided senses of piety. Um, or maybe not misguided, but incomplete senses. We do the training without ever getting onto the terrain of practice. Yeah. And I, I saw online that you'd said somewhere that um, you wouldn't change what your experiences in the past, um, even your time in prison. And I guess we'll come on to where that led to meeting Nelson Mandela. But, I, you know, it, it sounds like that enforced period of then having that, building that relationship with the Quran is something that 
you know, I know particularly around community activism, etc. Sometimes you get so busy in the organizing and the activity and the next things, where sometimes the spiritual side falls. And actually, you know, your circumstances were such that you had this almost regimental routine every day to to build and you know get that closeness with the Quran and reflect and you you know study it in such a profound way, but also read and so. And I'm sure that kind of stayed, you know, um, kept you instead in, in future future life as well. So, subhanAllah. So, and just for people, because I, I think sometimes we forget there's people that are growing up that are growing up in a post-apartheid world. So, you know, people, you know, although it was the the nineties, wasn't it? So, uh, Nelson Mandela was released from prison in 1990 after 27 years in prison, and then he was president in 1994. So still relatively recent, but you know, we feel old when there's young people now born after nine in the nineties. Um, I mean, how would you summarize? And you've touched upon that already, but somebody can you paint a picture of what apartheid was like in South Africa? And so you've spoken obviously your early experiences but if somebody who hasn't studied it doesn't really know the context just you know a few decades ago what the gist of our part is how would you kind of summarize what was going on in south africa i think we must take a 350 year view of apartheid rather than a 50 year view up till 1994 And if you take the 350-year view, that's when the Dutch colonialists arrived and colonized South Africa. They were later replaced by the British. Um, And so to to a large extent, the colonial um, rule laid the basis for the second phase of segregation, which laid the basis for the perfection of discrimination called apartheid. if you can imagine that in Cape Town we had slavery and the slaves were by and large my ancestors from the Malay archipelago. We had indentured laborers and they were the other part of my ancestors from India, people who were indentured laborers and had to work as merchants or sugar plantation workers. If you can imagine that there was the genocide of the first people, the killing of an entire people and the killing of a language. If you can imagine that there were the most horrific gender-based violence against women who were black on the farms in South Africa. If you could imagine the enormous wars of dispossession against the Kosa and the Zulu communities on the eastern side of South Africa, in which even the victors of those battles called the river where the battle took place, Blood River. That's how red it was with the blood of our people. If you could imagine the dispossession of cattle across South Africa and of land, across South Africa, then apartheid is more than segregation. It's because segregation would give you the idea of the separation of people. It wasn't the separation of people only. It was separation based on a hierarchy. 
at the top of the hierarchy were whites, then you had brown, then you had black. And each one were treated according to that hierarchy so that they built in a tension between brown and black because brown was fortunate that they were not as poor as black. And black mediated their anger at white through the brown who were placed in supervisory positions. Hmm. And that, so it's discrimination. It determined who you could marry. You, they had an immorality act that determined that you could not marry outside of your, um, outside of your, your race. It had a sense of not only separating schools, but also what was taught in schools. So, for example, a lot of our problems today are because black children were not allowed to learn math and science. And the highest we could go as colleagues would be priests and teachers. And so it determined your very future. And so it was separation, discrimination, but also dispossession. Like our houses were taken from us as we discussed it. But it was held in place by a minority who had to have overwhelming force. And so you had a white army, a white police force, and they were aided and abetted during the 70s and 80s by Israel to provide them with the technology for a nuclear weapon. And secondly, that they were later by Reagan and Thatcher given all the hardware in order to fight the so-called communist threat in Africa and the communist threat that was supposedly inherent in the liberation movement. And so, so that was apartheid. It was a major repressive force, but it was also a scientific act of determining they had, they had population studies at white universities to ingrain it into whites about why they are superior, and they had a Christian national ideology around it in much the same way that Hitler's Christian nationalism was central to, 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 to Nazism. And so, to some extent, we had the perfection of separation, discrimination, and dispossession all held together by repression in South Africa. And that really, in a nutshell, is what we are dealing with. And that was so systematized and ingrained generation after generation, wasn't it? Which was, um, it's interesting you draw a lot of parallels. A few times you've mentioned Palestine and Israel. And so was that always those parallels, even early on when, when you're growing up, um, as being similar injustices and it's, I guess there's really support of those promoting See, the reason that the Palestinian issue is so deep in South Africa is because we knew 
that there was very little dividing line between two oppressive systems, Zionism in Israel and in the Middle East and apartheid in South Africa. And to a large extent, we saw them cooperating. We saw the intelligence services working together. We saw the exchange of torture uh, methodologies. We saw the provision of nuclear capacity for the apartheid state. And so when you've seen all of that, you can't be fooled by the narrative of a victimized people looking for freedom in a land and then having the right to victimize those that they found there. Yeah. And so we're in that chapter of your life where you're becoming very involved in that in this background with student politics. Uh, you went to university and then um, you graduated and I think you became a high school teacher as well. But take us on to your fourth gem because I think that links into, I guess, the the time when you're assuming some of these leadership positions? So, so when you are confronted in an, a, a repressive and oppressive situation with leadership, leadership is not an honor. It is a punishment because you know that assuming that leadership means the chances of you having to go into the underground is great. The chances of you being jailed is very great. The chance of you being assassinated is quite great. And therefore, we've learned in a very kind of hard way not to be careerist about our leadership, not to desire lead, not to, to have unfettered ambition to be the leader because it had certain burdens that went with it. That was a very important lesson for the later contestation for leadership when it became post-apartheid. But I was very fortunate that I intersected my life by two ahadith. The first one that was very important during apartheid was when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam says, when two or more of you embark on a quest, the first thing you do is to elect a leader. Meaning, no situation where a collective of people come together, no situation must allow for a leadership vacuum to emerge. Every situation needs a leader. And therefore, you can't be so afraid of the consequences of leadership that you allow a vacuum to emerge. So you've got to take up. If you have two things, we capability and competence, and um, al-amana, you have the trust of people and you're trustworthy in turn. If you have those two things, you then are impelled to make sure that no leadership vacuum emerges. But that, on the other hand, is tempered by the other hadith, which is not contradictory. It's a balancing out. 
when Rasulullah Sallallahu says, um, whoever desires leadership should be denied it because your ego has preceded your capability and the trust because you have made the cause secondary to your own cause. Your interest has preceded your values. And so I've always tried, not always successfully, but I've always tried to navigate my life between those two ahadith based on the real experiences of the responsibility, the burden, and sometimes the punishment of leadership in an oppressive situation. Yeah. And I'd love to get your thoughts on, I guess, fast forward, you know, to more recent kind of decades. What's your analysis of the state of the Muslim leadership across in communities across the world? Because very much, I don't know in South Africa, but in the UK, there is that caricature that the Muslims, you know, are fighting over each other to assume leadership and that they'll do that at any cost. And even when they're not competent, you know, but there's that idea of, you know, power or recognition or, or you know, these things that have drive these individuals, which are not always beneficial for the, the community. Um, and so, and the, I guess we can see that on a local level. And I guess there's a lot of commentary uh, nationally, internationally as well with leaders of countries now than we see, you know, particularly in Muslim countries, but also corruption, etc. in in, you know, the Western world as well. But, you know, Muslim leaders who are oppressing their people, not fighting for justice, not, you know, meeting or aspiring to improve the rights of, of people that are under, you know, under their leadership. Um, and if you could touch on something you mentioned in Glasgow was, I think, this really important aspect of leadership is soft leadership, soft skills, soft power as well, which doesn't mean weak weakness, but... I loved how you kind of described and spoke about that because, again, the Muslim community, we often complain about having a lack of leadership, but also, you know, sometimes the response is anger and aggression and just, you know, let's just, you know, fight power, uh, you know, fight, you know, fire with fire. And, and sometimes, you know, that or often that doesn't work, you know, and it's not strategic or considered. So I'd love to get your thoughts on leadership, both individually as a Muslim, Umar, what your thoughts are, but also what advice would you be giving to people in leadership or that need to, uh, you know, aspire to leadership? Because many Muslims that are activists or or religious, I think, very much go down the line of, well, I, I'm not going to pursue leadership because of the second hadith, which is, you know, you shouldn't seek it. And then we get into a bit of a bind because the competent people aren't actually assuming the roles and the less competent ones are then <laughs> getting in there. So, would you mind just sharing your thoughts about leadership? And I know this is a whole session in itself, but just I'd be fascinated because you've seen it, I'm sure, locally, globally, and over time as well. Hmm. You know, I think that the issue of leadership comes too easily today because the popularity contests on social media are easy and enormous. You can judge your capabilities and your credentials by likes and retweets and um, 
and sharing rather than by a difference you make in the lives of, of people. And, 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 and I want to incorporate my fifth um, gem, which was very important in judging whether the ummah is on the right path or not. When Rasulullah says, whoever dies without struggling for justice or even intending it, dies on a twig of hypocrisy. Man mata and, and basically, you see, that there has to be a dividing line between the pretenders to the throne and those who can do it. Do you make a difference? Do you even intend to make a difference? Or are you a fair-weather um, leader that only comes out when the sun is shining but avoids any leadership when it is storming? And so can you withstand the heat when the heat comes to you, like going to jail or whatever the case may be? And, and the opposite of, and, and that's why this Kantian sense of opposites is a very important one. Because Immanuel Kant said, for example, that the opposite of short-sightedness is not perfect sight 2020 vision. The opposite of short-sightedness is long-sightedness. Perfect vision is the middle. The opposite of cowardice is not courage. The opposite of cowardice is recklessness and adventurousness. The perfect middle is courage because it is the courage to stand up against injustice, but it is also the courage to call out the reckless in our name, wearing our garb, shouting our language, quoting our Quran, and driving extreme agendas. So we have two extremes in the Muslim community that requires the leadership of the wasati. It's the extreme cowards who hide in the member. It's the extreme cowards who hide behind um, false modesty. No, I'm not a leader. You can't be in the mihrab and not lead. And it is the, 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 the reckless, the extremists, on the other hand. And so what is missing is not leadership. You've got leadership in the mimbar and the mihrab. You've got leadership of the extreme. What you don't have is the middle leadership. The leadership that can hold both to account. Who can say, you are going to die on a twig of hypocrisy. And so, 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 so in a sense, it is this deployment of Islam's soft power that is absolutely crucial that the middle leadership must be able to take up otherwise the Ummah is going to not only uh, face setbacks, it's going to become irrelevant. It's going to have a perfect message, but it will be irrelevant. And what about Muslim, I'm thinking particularly politicians um, in Muslim minority countries, so in the West, for example, where we're a minority, for example, in the UK or US, um, 
one of the main criticisms is how much they maybe have to compromise their faith to appeal to the wider electorate or you know to get further in government etc now what, what would your advice be to these people because is this just the nature of politics that they're going to have to do these compromises with the bigger objective in mind or how do they navigate because particularly the, there are things in in you know majority non-muslim countries that we live in where those issues don't necessarily fit comfortable with our faith and yet if you're working in that system you know you need to be a certain type of person to be able to balance this and 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 manage the politics and the leadership so what have you have you i'm just thinking from your own experience how have you navigated that or what advice would you be giving to people because if they say well if i'm too religious then i'm not going to get far in government i'm not going to get the positions i'm not going to get elected as members of parliament or whatever that might be become president or prime minister and conversely if they are compromising to be appealed to the masses then people will say well you're selling out your religion and your faith how does somebody balance balance that you see islam has has a very pragmatic approach to life. It has deeply rooted principles, but sometimes we make everything a principle in Islam. Not everything is a principle. So the security of people and the security of Muslims have to be paramount. After 300 years of Islamophobia, when Muslims were enslaved when Islam was banned and Muslims were discriminated against by apartheid. The first priority wasn't to fight the gays. The first priority was to establish Islam and Muslims as a within a Darul Aman, a Darul Salam, and a Darul Shahada, a place of security, of peace, and of the free profession of their faith. You see, if you have a sense of what comes first, then you don't fight the softest battles that pre present themselves to you. And so that's what we did. We did not activate certain debates, but we did always demand the right to preach against it, and the right to guard against whatever we see without affronting those who do practice it, because it was also pragmatic in the sense that today in South Africa, we may have a government that loves Muslims and are lukewarm on gays. And so when we say to that government, because of our electoral strength, because of our historical participation in the anti-apartheid struggle, we want you to elevate us and to denigrate them. Tomorrow there will be a government who hates Muslims and love gays. And then the very tools that we have given to discriminate against them and to repress them will be used justifiably against us. And therefore there are some things where we must not make Allah unemployed. We must say, let Allah be the judge of that, 
But what we need is the right to guard against its influence necessarily pervading us. And so when we had, for example, um, in South Africa, the issue of um, gay marriages, we used our influence not to say astaghfirullah, but to say, you know, don't call it marriages because that's sanctified by God. Let's call it civil unions. Let's make it a contract between two people who consent like that so that if that's what they want to do, we are not pulled into it as ulama to perform those kind of things and to sanctify what we don't agree with. You see, there are ways to manage all. Many people could call the Prophet wasallam a coward because when Sumayya, may Allah be pleased with her, was martyred in the haram, he did not raise an army. When Bilal was tortured, he did not raise a fight. When Abu Bakr was bankrupted, he did not raise a civil movement because the first principle was to survive and to build strength and prepare for the hijrah. And only there did he contemplate the idea of a defensive army when Quraysh came at Badr during Ramadan. So, 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 so you see, we, we, we need, and this is when you have read the whole Quran, yeah. begin to understand, and especially, you know, in prison, after a few months of solitary confinement, my father persuaded the prison authorities that the Quran is the Old Testament and the seerah. The life of the Prophet is the New Testament, and I need both. <laughs> and so after five months, Alhamdulillah, I was reading the Quran with the Martin Ling's biography. Oh, wow. And so you get a real-time sense yeah. in a verse, and I chose Martin Ling's because it was based on the original source as described in the Quran so that I could correlate what I was reading in the one with what I was reading in the other. And so I think it is when we get hung up on memorizing 10,000 ahadith, we may not be fully au fait with the personality of the Prophet because sometimes we can attribute to the Prophet on whom be peace things which militate against our understanding of his personality. Or we may attribute things to the Prophet وسلم, things which may not be as concordant with what we have read in the Quran. And I think that's one of the things with experience and wisdom is that certainly as I've got older, you realize life is less binary and black and white and there's a lot more gray and nuance. And even when you study the Quran, the seerah, you know, it's it's there's not... It's, it's, it's not clear, there's nuances, context, there's subtext, there's, you know, all of these other things um, that you have to understand. And I think that's perhaps as we mature as a community, then inshallah, these are things that we can keep in mind. So on the on the topic of leadership, um, I'd love to hear about Nelson Mandela and your, how you got to know him or meet him and what was he like? 
behind closed doors? What was his views of Islam? Was he a spiritual person? What did you learn from him? Because I guess for many of us, it's just what we've seen in front of the camera or, or you know, from one perspective and people are very different um, behind closed doors. So just I'd love to hear your experience of, of Nelson Mandela and I think that will then link into your next gem as well. So we grew up in a situation where the image of Nelson Mandela was banned. We could not see a photo of him. We grew up in a situation where any words of Nelson Mandela was banned. We could not hear his voice. We could not read his words. And so we had this mythology of Nelson Mandela. And we based our struggle around his release and his leadership because his personality and his leadership was the antithesis of the apartheid leadership that we had seen. And he embodied our finest values. He led the defiance campaigns, which was basically based on the Gandhian version of nonviolence. We, he improved on it, if I could put it, because he turned it from a passive resistance into a militant nonviolence. It was confrontational, um, but always nonviolent. When those avenues closed, when the ANC was banned, when the leaders were jailed, it was then that Nelson Mandela became the founding commander of the ANC's guerrilla army. And yet again, made it very clear that there are rules in the engagement. And this was stunning to us as Muslims, because did the Quran not say, you don't hurt this, you don't hurt that, you don't even destroy the trees, you have ethics of war. And this was instinctively coming out of someone like Nelson Mandela's leadership. And it was... And, and the one resonant speech of Nelson Mandela that is my sixth gem is the one that he made when he was charged for treason. He was facing either a life sentence or a death sentence. And his speech on behalf of all the prisoners would determine what it would be. There was a line in that speech that his lawyers advised him not to use because it could be seen as inviting the death sentence. But Nelson Mandela was very clear that this was the moment to take the stand, that he and they would be victors anyway. And he said to the judge, and I quote him, I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal for which I hope to live and to achieve, but if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Unquote. That was the challenge he threw down to the judge. He said to the judge, make a martyr of me. But you see, it wasn't a defiant speech in that sense. 
But here is Nelson Mandela doing almost the Muslim thing. He starts with the end. He defines what in life is so precious that you are willing to die for it. Define that first. And if you have defined that, then you will know what to live for. He didn't say, I am prepared to die. No, he said, no, this is what I want to live for. This is what I want to achieve. But it is so valuable that I'm actually prepared to die for it. You see, that then places into perspective Nelson Mandela's whole modus operandi, his way of operating. Because having defined the most precious thing, he now had a life purpose. His niya, his intention was clear. His life purpose was established. Because, if I could paraphrase with the Quran, um, we are always returning to Allah. We are always returning to the end. And therefore we know how we must live our life from the beginning to the end. And so that really is, and so when I met Nelson Mandela in 1987 in Polsmoor Prison, the warden had come to me, said to me that um, I, I must go with him to the hospital. I protested that I'm not sick. He says, no, just get dressed and come with me. And we came to the hospital and said, go inside there and wait. And if anyone speaks to you, don't speak loudly. And while I was inside there, a door opened, in walked a tall, gray-haired man. And we, I almost knew that that was Nelson Mandela. But can you imagine? He knew about me. He had heard about me. He knew I was in the same prison with him. He knew that I was leading a Muslim organization. And basically could express to me his appreciation for the way he could express to me his appreciation for the way Muslims had rallied to the struggle. That his experience of Muslims have often been that we are insular. We only look after other Muslims. We only fight the injustices that are done against us. And here he saw a call of Islam that was fighting with and for all people. And that was so important because it was almost as if he guaranteed to me that Muslims will not be left behind when liberation comes. And he was true to his word that when he speaks about all people living together in harmony and with equal opportunities, it suddenly included us. And therefore, when he came out of prison, one of the first things he did was to go to the oldest mosque in Cape Town, the Owal Masjid, to do his first Thanksgiving. The next day he went to a synagogue. The Sunday he went to a church in Soweto. But at the mosque in Cape Town and visiting the grave 
of one of our ancestors, Tuanguru, who brought, who was exiled to Cape Town as a religious leader. He said to me, Ibrahim, you know we are going to be free. And I said, yes, we know. He said, are the Muslims ready? And I said, what do you mean? He said, do you know what you want in a new South Africa? Do you know how you want to influence the way we draw up our constitution and Bill of Rights? And out of that, I suddenly awoke and we convened the National Muslim Conference in which 750 Muslim organizations came together to define how we will take up the challenge of a Nelson Mandela. And that's because the man had a life purpose. Unlike so many of us who have no purpose be beyond the next what, who have no ambition for society. Yeah. It's fascinating, actually, just to hear about that. And it reminds you of the... The importance, I guess, of working across barriers and religions and cultures as well to achieve certain objectives. And we saw that even in the Prophet, peace be upon him, early life as well, where he made certain pacts, etc., which were for the betterment of society. And I guess you know, we always need to keep keep that in mind. Um, and fast forwarding many years later on, because um, I, I know we're coming towards our conclusion of our interview, but... Um, you spent, you were obviously the ambassador to the US um, for a number of years. And also, I was doing some research and just again showing how perhaps you're a bit ahead of the time. Is <laughs> A big issue at the moment is obviously Islamophobia and anti Muslim hatred in the last number of years. And you wrote an article back in 2010, which was fascinating the, the title, which was South African Muslims over three centuries. From the jaws of Islamophobia to the joys of equality, um, and uh, it's it's a fascinating article as well, because you you compare obviously the the history of Muslims in South Africa over three hundred years versus the Muslim migration to the Western lands maybe in the last you know since the Second World War, particularly in Britain and America, etc. But also the idea of as a community, whether we take us victim mentality or we have agency. And, you know, I think that's such an important um, article, actually. So uh, it was, I just found it fascinating you were thinking about that 13 years ago and writing about it. And, you know, to be honest, Islamophobia wasn't being that discussed so much in, in the UK. But um, is there anything you wanted to share around I guess your time in America as an ambassador dealing with, you know, that experience, how did that change or shape you or, um, you know, how did you kind of translate your own experience from, you know, fighting a certain struggle um, in South Africa to very much, you know, uh, addressing different challenges. I can only imagine being in America in, in 2010 to 2015. Yeah, no, I, I came to America 10 years after 9-1-1, and it was still a major impact on the life of Muslims. And while I came there to represent my country and my government, I was suddenly embraced by the diversity of Muslims in the USA, whether they were 
of the African American um, diversity or whether they're from the Afro Arab diversity, the Indian um, Arab diversity. And I certainly thought that they were in danger of adopting victimhood as their mantle, that they were the victims of history, that they were suffering this Islamophobia. They were part of this great repression after um, 9-1-1. And all of that was right. But you can be a victim without embracing victimhood. And that's where my kind of seventh gem comes in. I was reminded I did German at high school in Cape Town and enjoyed the, 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 the dramas and poetry of Bertolt Brecht. And one of his plays called Galileo was persecuted for denouncing the idea that the earth was flat. Bertolt Brecht speaks through Galileo to say, Unhappy is the land that needs a hero. And so while we may be in a situation of unhappiness, of discrimination, of Islamophobia, of oppression, the unhappiness is just the context for calling you out to be a hero. If you defy the calling to be a hero, and you wallow instead in your victimhood, you have learned nothing from the early Muslims in Makkah. The Quran says, don't cower crying for peace when you should be uppermost. The conditions, however terrible, are simply calling you out to be uppermost. And therefore, you need to be creative, not only brave, because extremists are braver than us, but they are not wiser than us. And so it's that combination that creates the perfect courage to act in the moment. That's why history has put you where you are in the time that you are in. And so that's where that article in Arches came about. I don't think it was necessarily appreciated um, as much then. Um, because I was probably preloading it with a lot of the history of South Africa, but I deliberately put the trajectory of South African Muslims so that if you think you have Islamophobia, think of your ancestors as slaves. Think of the genocide. Think of the banning of Islam. Think of the imprisonment of Muslims. Think that the first prisoner on Robben Island was not Nelson Mandela, but was Sheikh Matura. Think of that. And then you will see the evolution was an evolution not only of oppression and Islamophobia and apartheid, but it was an evolution of heroism. And that, I think, is absolutely um, crucial. And, and you've got to, and I'll just smuggle in my last gem, you've got to work with the truth that Agathon, the Greek dramatist, the one who wrote those tragedies in Greece that he wrote, he says, not even the gods can change the past. If you wallow in victimhood, you sink yourself into the past. Life is not lived through the rearview mirror. 
You've got to glance at it regularly, but you live life through the windscreen where you see the full road ahead of you. Subhanallah. It is, is a wonderful insight and, and, and reflections. And I, I must say that article is hard to find online. So if you get an opportunity to repost it or if you want to get, get it out there, then I think people would be really interested in the current context, actually. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to spend the last few minutes um, just talking about you as the individual. And, and I guess one of the... You know, when you speak to people that have achieved things with immense sacrifice, um, something always has to give. And I'm particularly minded in terms of family, in terms of what they have to um, endure and and deal with. So what impact has your kind of struggle and your pages in prison, et cetera, had on your loved ones? And I'm particularly thinking perhaps about your wife, your family, your children, and how you know how have they coped with everything that you've been through and how have you been able to do it with them um because often the you know they're, they're the silent warriors aren't they which people don't hear about mm. no i must say that um i was very fortunate that i married a woman rushida who was as involved in the anti-apartheid struggle as I was. She was of a later generation, but she was the secretary of the Student Representative Council at her school, and it was in fact her friend, who was the chairperson of the SRC, who introduced me to her. And we met the friend and I in prison. We were in cells next to each other the first time I was imprisoned. Rashida and I had a date to be married, and then I was caught. And so effectively, we were delayed for about one and a half years. Um, and we kind of sacrificed our wedding because it was a state of emergency. And our wedding had a thousand people in the student hall at the University of the Western Cape. Um, it was surrounded by caspers, which are police armored vehicles. I had to sign in at the police station. We had to get six different permissions to be able to get married. So the context of the marriage was an intensely political one. Um, but we did all the rituals and the traditions of a proper Islamic marriage. And so Rushida was, and the trick is, if you are cultivating a wife simply to minister the home, they will miss you. But if your wife remains an active member of society as she was, she was, amongst others, the Commissioner for Gender Equality, appointed by the state president in South Africa. Um, she was part of the gender advocacy program that won the right for women to be represented 50-50. Um, in the um, ANC's list for parliament. So those, those are the kind of struggles that she is in. When we had our daughter, she was born when Nelson Mandela was just um, released. And so we named her Tahrir, to be free, liberation. And we gave her also an African named Tandeka. And when our son was born, eight years later in 1999, 
we named him Tanwir, the new light, uh, to speak to our hopes for a renaissance. And in fact, his African name is Sinetemba. Um, we have hope. Um, and so, 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 so those were the very kind of conscious ways in which we named our children because they would forever embody our finest ideals and moments um, in life. And, 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 and that wasn't a license for neglect. And so throughout my busy life, Rushida and I have had a very active timetable about who cooks when, who cleans when, and who minds the children when. And so my office, when even when I was premier or governor of the Western Cape, my office knew that on these nights, um, the premier needs to have two hours off um, in order to go and prepare food uh, for his family. Or if there's an inadvertent meeting, they would ask me, should we organize food for the family because it's your night? And so those are the ways in which we have tried to live consciously a life of equality because the point is, and I know this is, I, I, I feel particularly fed up with activists for Palestine. They want so much freedom and equality in Palestine and liberation in Palestine, but they don't understand that it starts in your own home. If you can't live equal lives with your wife, then who are you to be so outraged about inequality in Palestine because you are not the embodiment of it? And that's why I think we must live consistent lives. What we believe, we must do. What we proclaim, we must act on. And I think that that's really what I've tried to do. And that's the only guarantee that your children will see you regularly, that you will not become a stranger to them, and that your wife will remain in committed faithfulness, not subservience, but in committed faithfulness with you throughout your, 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 your life journey. And I guess it's that balance which our Prophet, peace be upon us, taught us as well to aspire to and, and to work towards. Um, how would you like to be remembered? I, I'm not too sure. I, 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 I spoke in Glasgow of the, the fundamental choice about whether you've left a vacancy or whether you've left a legacy. Hmm. I'm hoping that my legacy would be that he tried to be faithful to the Quran, that he tried to love it, that he loved it at the service of the Ummah and to highlight the centrality of peace and justice and equality in the Ummah, but that he also was a source of da'wah out of those Islamic values for the nation of South Africa and that he was an ambassador of Islam to the world. And and if you were to meet a younger Ibrahim in his teens or early 20s, what would you say to him? I'd say you should have made time for rugby. <laughs> the rugby passion, the spring box, eh? Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So that was going to be, be my next question. I mean, how do you relax? What makes you laugh? What do you, do you have downtime because you're incredibly busy? Is it rugby or is it other things? How do you... 
have that time to yourself and regenerate and recharge? So COVID had allowed me to get in touch with a whole lot of things that I think I've neglected in life. So for one, I became the chairperson of Western Province or the Stormers professional rugby team that is now the URC champions. Um, and, and, and that was the period in which we made all the strategic decisions for the kind of rugby team that we wanted. So I went back to that. Secondly, the things that I hated doing um, that my father wanted me to do, such as gardening, um, suddenly I've bought a piece of property and I've developed a fruit orchard, a vegetable garden, an indigenous garden, an English garden with rolling lawns and, um, and a herb garden. Um, so that has helped me to literally find roots um, again. I enjoy reading and I enjoy writing. And I'm hoping, inshallah, that um, I could actually be a bit more productive um, in writing up some of these ideas that, that I have had. Inshallah. And if uh, the Springboks are playing Scotland at rugby, you're more than welcome to come to Murrayfield and uh, we'd love to see you here and host Look, you. My brother, the Springboks play Scotland in their opening match in Paris at the World Cup. We can't, <laughs> we can't allow the world champions to be dethroned by a Scottish team that has in its squad at least four or five South Africans. <laughs> I think my knowledge of Scottish rugby is uh, tailed off over the years. I, I used to play rugby in the, at school. Oh, but, then, but, um, so just to conclude, we are casting you away to the desert island uh, and I ask all my guests how you think you would cope but with the solitude but I guess you've had a head start with that is that something you would look forward to again or is that you've had enough of that in your life that you would struggle without the company without anybody else on this desert island no I, I, I if anything it has taught me the value of human connection but if ever I were to be cast off I this time want to complement the Quran with at least the tragedies of Shakespeare. I studied literature, majored in it at university, and I have really come to appreciate the complex human beings with their tragic flaws and how those tragic flaws play themselves out. I still today look at a president and say, I think he's a little bit of an Othello. Um, he has a chip on his shoulder that needs to be dealt with. Or uh, my current president in South Africa, I think is a bit of an Hamlet, a Hamlet. He knows what is right, but he doesn't have the courage to do what is right. He postpones what should be done. And I look at, and, and, and that's really where my love of English literature, particularly William Shakespeare comes in because it's reading for healing and mercy. So, yep, you can have the complete works of William Shakespeare on the island, uh, as well as the Quran. And what luxury item would you take with you? My brother, I've developed one little vice in life. I'm not, I don't regard myself as a material 
person, but it happened accidentally. One of the one of the benefits of being in public life is that you're always getting gifts. And I developed very good relations with a number of people, particularly from the Middle East, and they've started a love affair with wristwatches. So I refuse <laughs> to even wear a Fitbit for any of time because it is digital. I prefer analog watches. I prefer good watches. I don't necessarily do Breitlings and Rolexes. I think that's ostentatious. I just enjoy good craftsmanship with watches, but it's also because I think time is very important. Time is very valuable. And um, we all grew up ending our meetings with the incantation of Wal Asr by the stroke of time. And so I think maybe I can justify my love for for good-looking watches with the Quran like that. Absolutely. You can have the watches as well. And speaking, <laughs> speaking of time and Wal Asr, um, I think we've kept you long enough. So inshallah, we will conclude now. Um, all that I can say is that it's been a real privilege, Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul. Um, I've learned so much and it's certainly, as I mentioned at the beginning, some a conversation that I'd love to have had uh, over many, many years. May Allah subhanahu wa continue to give you the strength and the wisdom and the courage and, and the steadfastness to continue in the amazing work that you've done. But also sharing that with the rest of us because I think your insights and experiences have been particularly shaped depending on the circumstances that you grew up in and that you've um, been in as an adult that I think many of us, you know, can learn from as well. So inshallah, you know, I'd love to see more of your writings, love to hear more from you and um, keep things going and keep us all in your du'as, particularly in this month of Ramadan. Have a blessed Ramadan for you and your family. And jazakallah khair once again. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam and Ramadan kareem. Thank you.